If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Coming up on this week's show, a mysterious Nintendo prototype is uncovered. Play a sensible soccer clone on your spectrum. We celebrate Sega's legendary console with the Dreamcast Junkyard. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every Friday with our amazing friends at Bitmap Books. Now, if you want a good read for the summer, Sinclair ZX Spectrum, a visual compendium. Relive the glory days of the Spectrum with this award-winning collection covering over 100 classic games, including legendary titles like Hungry Horace and The Hobbit and spanning 304 pages. Make sure you check this out if you're a Spectrum fan and the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. And with our mates at PCBWay, who offer a fully featured custom PCB prototype service with low-cost, fast turnaround quality boards, and they do services like 3D printing and injection molding. And you know they're big supporters of the retro community. So get an instant quote for your retro project right now at PCBWay.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 377, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And great to have you joining us for another packed episode of the podcast that every single Friday takes you on a nostalgic trip back to the classic age of video games. And of course, brings you up to speed on all the big happenings in the world of retro. You don't have to look around at all the blogs and the websites and the social media accounts and Google around. That takes a lot of time. Let us do it for you. Every week we bring you up to speed on what's been happening. And of course, we bring you a very special guest in the second half of the show. I'm hoping that Joe Fox is going to sound... uh, Nice and relaxed, almost vertical on this week's podcast, having come back from a uh, week in the sunshine in Tenerife. Yeah, you know, feeling relaxed, feeling chill, um, putting the stress on Dan because we're recording this literally like a day before the episode comes out because <laughs> I decided to jet off. So thank you very much, guys. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, you've been away on holiday and I know obviously when us geeks go away, I remember you know, when I went away to Rome with my missus a couple of years ago, we're going to take a day trip to the Vatican, but on the way there stumbled across a really cool retro gaming museum, ended up spending all afternoon in there instead. So generally we do, we do get a bit distracted. And I did see on your social media accounts that you might have been doing a bit of retro gaming when you're on holiday in Tenerife. <laughs> yeah, um, I did actually, they had an arcade in the hotel, in the hotel, and um, they had like a really, really pristine copy of, uh, I say copy, arcade machine of uh, Gunblade New York, which was just like crazy. I think that came out in like 1994. I think I've never heard of that one. Gunblade New York. Sounds yeah, fun. it's a first person shooter with like big vibrating machine guns by Sega. And basically right up your street pretty much. Yeah, yeah. And you fly around in a helicopter blasting people in New York, you know, terrorists kind of thing. Um, so definitely put a few euros into that. I got about halfway through it. And then revisited it on like the last day of the holiday because you know you have to to pay spend your last few coins that you can't get exchanged. But that was really it. That there was on because we stayed in an all inclusive for my daughter. Uh, and those who know a classic British holiday, you know the all inclusive, they have like 
the mini disco and the games nights and stuff. And they did a retro games night on one of the nights. And my daughter fell asleep <laughs> in the restaurant. So we had to take her back to the hotel room and I missed it. I missed the whole thing. Oh, that that um, was your time to shine, Joe. That was my yeah. time to shine. I said to my missus and I said this to Ravi as well on, on text. I said, the, the warrior would have been there. You know, you don't mess with the warrior. Like, the warrior. The, I, bet, I bet the word got around, you know, <laughs> Joe from the retro hours here. We need to, you know, make him feel at home. Let's get the Mega Drive set up. And then he didn't show up and broke the little I, I, I don't know what it was. I've got a feeling, because it said retro video games. I've got a feeling it was probably going to be a Wii. I said to my missus, it's probably a Wii. Like, let's be honest, yeah. with Wii Bowling and stuff like that. But even then, I would have been quite excited. And I did yeah. do a little Google to see what if they had any retro game shops in Tenerife on the little island. And uh, they do. Um, but unfortunately, I was like two hours away from them. Interestingly, so, uh, yeah. they had, um, you know, those virtuality machines, the um, Amiga v- virtual reality ones. I know mm. that quite a few of them made it over to Tenerife. And, um, oh, really? Th- yeah, yeah. There's a guy, uh, Simon Marsden. He, he works at the uh, Retro Computer Museum in Leicester. He actually yeah. bought some from Tenerife and, and bought That's them insane. back. So I think That's a lot brilliant. of the kind of old arcades like made it over yeah. there as well. I said to my missus, I said, you know what? The chances of there like, being dusty House of the Dead arcade machines like knocking about on, you know, in Tenerife or Spain or whatever is much more likely than them knocking around in, in the UK these days, I imagine, you know, because of this probably still in like hotel lobbies and stuff like that, you know. I've got these of visions of, of your missus being around the pool and kind of looking through the glass and there's you with your, your virtuality headset on playing Dactyl's Nightmare yep. and <laughs> ignoring all the sunshine and everything. 100%. 100 million percent <laughs> that would have been me getting into trouble for not spending time with my daughter. Well, I'm glad you had a nice holiday, Joe. Nice to have you back. And uh, I know things are kind of ramping up now as the summer months are here. And not long until Ravi's massive Amiga event. Just a quick reminder, because there are still some tickets left. We keep getting people saying, you know, is it a sellout yet? It's not far away now, is it? We've only got a couple of months until until Kickstarter 01, the massive UK Amiga Expo that's going to be happening on the 1st and 2nd of July at Meadow Lane Football Ground in Nottingham. So at the time recording this, we've got about 50 days to go. Um, there are still some tickets available if people are quick, is that right? Yeah, yeah, we've got about 50 tickets left for the Saturday and uh, more for the Sunday because, you know, the Sunday always uh, requires a bit of like extra focus as well and um uh you know there'll be a lot of people nursing hangovers and stuff <laughs> it's it's going to be awesome i've announced a lot of the speakers at the moment i've just put up the traders hall so this is going to be a proper big expo and uh in amiga addict magazine the next issue we're going to be like covering the event and talking about like mm. how it came together and stuff so it's really exciting and uh i can't wait personally <laughs> i've just got to stop adding things to it because if i do too much then you know oh there won't be much time so i'm doing a few things but making sure they're really good you know it's a weekend event not a week long yeah (laughs) you know me i love amiga i could go on forever i have a have a month-long festival that's the thing hopefully it's a bit of a tester really isn't it so you know we want everyone there and hopefully you're going to do another one next year and keep it going regularly if it's a success yeah because i've kind of like set this up myself um Mm. you know getting the numbers and capacity it's always hard to work out these things you know you never know if you haven't got that like guaranteed audience so this year we're kind of working out what the audience is going to be like and then hopefully we can expand it and grow it but uh you know it seems to be seems to be selling well which is fantastic and uh yeah i I just can't wait loving your guest list as well mike daly from dma design is going to be there talking about lemmings and those classic games mev dink as well from vivid image of course we've had him on the podcast before simon phipps from core design john hare 
sensible software. I imagine there's going to be a Sensi soccer tournament there. That, there's that got to be. Really there's sure. got to be. It's at a football <laughs> stadium, so you know there's there's got to be a Sensi soccer game. So uh, tickets are available for that now. Uh, like like we said, you know, use them or lose them if you want to see this event regularly. You know, uh, we want to see as many people there as possible. So uh, the website is amigashow.com, and hopefully we'll see you there. Um, all those guys are going to be there for the uh, UK Amiga Expo Kickstart 01 uh, coming on the 1st and 2nd of July in Nottingham. This week, though, on the podcast, it is all about a different machine, because uh, we're going to be covering the legend that is the Sega Dreamcast. Yes, uh, absolutely legendary console, and amazingly one that's still like got such love and development. And part of that is, you know, the Dreamcast junkyard. There have been a community that have been going for years, and they've been supporting the Dreamcast. And uh, they've also got, like, the DreamPod as well, which is a, a fantastic podcast. And you think, like... You know, the Dreamcast, it was a good console. It had a bit of a short kind of life as a console, but uh, mm. there's still so much going on. It's it's absolutely amazing. So we've got Mike and Lewis from the show there, and uh, we're talking about stuff like modern games being created on the Dreamcast and ported. And uh, I don't know about you, Joe, but I've seen like some really high-end ports done. I don't think I've seen on any other console this kind of... Uh, attention to detail but also the idea that they go out and actually get these games licensed and say we're going to release this on the dreamcast it comes out with official packaging and you know a manual it's it's pretty amazing to see yeah the dreamcast like the community behind it is like it never stopped it feels and it was just it's amazing to see like there's more games released at the dreamcast every year than there was in the final actual kind of like year or two of the Dreamcast's actual commercial like life uh, lifespan, and yeah, just talking and- to Mike and Lewis about that and how how they got into the Dreamcast and how they got into the community, and then actually finding out that Dreamcast Dreamcast Junkyard actually started as a blog pretty much at the end of the Dreamcast's life. Like they've been doing it for like something like eighteen years, I think they said. Um, the Dreamcast drunk oh it's been going which is just absolutely crazy and then you know I didn't realize I've been listening to their podcast they've got over 100 episodes now as well of the uh, dream uh, dream pod which is really cool and it's it's mad because like not only games are coming out we're also getting hardware so there's stuff like the updated VMUs that have come out mm. there's there's new controllers and stuff and it, it, it's pretty amazing also we do talk a bit about uh if a Dreamcast Mini is going to come, which is uh, one thing that we we constantly talk about on this podcast. I like their opinion on that as well, because they've got a pretty firm opinion on whether or not that's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's interesting. It's actually, Dreamcast, I was, I was in Leeds over the weekend, and I went into uh, CX, and I bought myself a, a Dreamcast light gun for 15 quid in there. Oh, oh nice. Wow. If, you, well, if you've got a good CRT so. to run it on. Oh, of course. It, you know I do. <laughs> <laughs> I've got 20. <laughs> yeah. It's Dan. He's got a wall of them. <laughs> it's how I heat my house. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the Dreamcast is obviously a console that I think... We've talked about it before, the fact that obviously it had that period when it didn't do very well when the, the PlayStation 2 came along. But really, it feels like since then, it really is the console that the retro gaming community have really taken to heart. You know, everyone loves a Dreamcast. So it's going to be a really interesting chat with Mike and Lewis from Dreamcast Junkyard, our special guests. They'll be on the show in around half an hour from now. Of course, before that, we're going to bring it up to speed on what's been happening. Another busy week in retro. And um, something else has been very topical recently. And a thank you to Janier, who uh, posted this on our Discord channel, because we do have a little channel in our Discord that you can join 
via our website, theretrohour.com. Go in there. There's actually a little section where you can submit news stories as well. So if you spot anything, you think that'd be a good story for the show, pop it in there and hopefully we'll cover it in a future episode. But he posted this um, seemingly unreleased prototype for Tetris. Now, of course, Tetris has been all over recently because of that Apple documentary that was on Apple TV recently that we all loved, or that docudrama more, wasn't it, really? But this apparently shows what could have been a version of Tetris for the Nintendo Game & Watch. Yeah, this is, it's it's a strange one, this, isn't it? Because of it's not been confirmed whether it's actually, like, real or not, but it looks mm. legitimate, and it kind of checks out. So it's it's in the shell of another Game & Watch game. It's using the shell of Safe Buster, um, which is one of the other Game & Watch games, but then the actual game itself is Tetris. And it, it's, you know, it's in terms of the Game & Watch, it's running quite well. But there just doesn't there isn't there isn't any more kind of like information about it. But I tried to do some digging and stuff like that, and pretty much when the Game Boy came out in 1989, that's when Nintendo obviously all their focus just went went from the Game and Watches onto the Game Boy because Game and Watch started in 1980, and I think there was only a couple more released after that. The last one was record was released in 1991, so it would make sense with Tetris being such a huge seller for the Game Boy as well. You know, it kind of made the Game Boy, didn't it? You know, mm. I, it, it makes sense that it, they were probably thinking of putting it on the Game and Watch, and then decided not to because of it was selling so well on the Game Boy. So I can I can see the legitimacy of it, like you know, from the speculation of like the whole story. Um, but it'd be great to find out if it is actual proper prototype. It says it is, but you know, there's no confirmation. Of yeah, that. You, you you never know with these things, and mm. it's it's weird as well because you know the game and watch you've got two screens on there, obviously. Yeah, and um, on the top one you've got these two characters as well. I'm not sure if I can identify them. You might uh, know them, Joe, but um, it's it, it works differently. It doesn't work in the way that a traditional Tetris game mm. works, where you have the kind of main area with your blocks where they land, um, that's usually stationary. In this one, you actually move that area left and right. Yeah, I, I which found that is really, really odd. Like, yeah, I've not seen that before. So you're actually moving the area left and right, and then the blocks are landing into the kind of spot that you've picked, rather than just manipulating the block and then moving that and dropping that in. It's it's as if the board, like the game board on the bottom screen doesn't fit on the Game & Watch screen, but that feels like that would be an oversight. That You know, I don't feel like Nintendo would, like, oh, they would, like, miss that. Does that make sense? So it yeah. does, it kind of looks purposeful. And like you say, you move the bottom screen, and it took me a minute, like, the video's, like, four minutes long, and it kind of took me, like, a minute and a half to kind of figure out what was going on because I was like, wait, he just placed that box and now it's moved? Like, can he move them after and, he's And the weird them? thing is as well, you can have lots of patterns on the bottom as well because it seems like as you move it, you've obviously got a wider space. Mm. So more options. So it, it kind of changes the gameplay completely to uh, compared yeah. to, you know, Tetris where it's on one screen or something yeah. like that. And maybe it's the format of the screen as well, the fact that it's, um, you know, it's horizontal. and Yeah, um, maybe. Maybe yeah, four by yeah, you three. Could, you maybe you could be right there. Maybe they've done it. They did it on purpose, and they made it kind of like you know they wanted to make it different to traditional Tetris, or because of the screen aspect ratio, like you say, they they had to do it like that. But it definitely puts an interesting spin on it. It just took you know because of like Tetris is in like your muscle memory. It's like mm. everybody knows how to play Tetris, and then all of a sudden 
you're moving the bottom screen like that it just really threw me off but as for the characters at the top um i thought it was dr mario at first which would kind of make sense because of he, he there was like the dr mario and tetris um game pack for the snes i'm not sure if it came out on nintendo as well but yeah, that was around 1990 that game came out, didn't it? So I guess if they were, you know, the, if the, they were making a version for the Game & Watch before it got discontinued in 91, that would mm. kind of work out time-wise that it would be him. But yeah, it is stranger because they, they kind of throw the, the Tetramones down a little like neck, don't they? And then mm. it gets wider at the bottom on the second screen. And then you've got to kind of wrap yeah, the play field around the block. Yeah. I and mean, it's a very weird way of playing it. I mean, you know, you, you may be looking at it thinking, obviously Tetris wasn't as well known then, obviously, as it is today. Yeah. So maybe they were still kind of figuring out, you know, what was the best way to play it. Maybe. Um, or, or maybe it was just because of the power of the Game & Watch as well. You know, it's a, quite a low-powered device compared to the Game Boy. And a very low screen resolution as well. I mean, this is a... It is a, a Japanese Twitter user called Vectrex0904 um, who's posted a few pictures of it as well, and there's a little video that you can watch too. Uh, but again, I mean, it's all in Japanese. There's no kind of information on where they've got this from or, you know, whether it is completely le- legit. So I'm hoping more details about this are going to come out because if that is a legitimate kind of alternate reality version of game of Tetris that would have come out on the Game & Watch, maybe instead of the Game Boy, that would have changed a hell of a lot in video game history, wouldn't it? So it'll be interesting to find out a bit more about that story. So if you want to check out those tweets, um, there's a great article on there, time extension that I'll link up in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, if we're talking about, you know, games that are definitely up Joe Street, you know, you love your, your, your light gun games and your first person shooters and Castlevania, obviously one of your favourite franchises. And this is something I must admit I'd really heard about before, but this is Castlevania the Arcade. There's apparently a bit of a lost game in the Castlevania franchise that now looks like it could be available to more people and playable at home on your PC. Yeah, this I found this really interesting. So I saw this originally on a group on Facebook and kind of dismissed it as like, because of it's Castlevania the Arcade playable on PC. And as you say, it's claiming it's a bit of a lost game. And I was even like, well... You, uh, even though you can't use the controllers, it's uh, oh, yeah. play, yeah. playable we'll, we'll on get, the PC. We'll get that. We'll get to that. We'll get, on the PC. We'll, yeah. we'll get to that. But yeah, I was like, oh, okay, is this the, the weird haunted house Castlevania game from the 80s, um, which played like a really janky version of Castlevania, but with really big sprites. I, I, I dismissed it and didn't read it at first. And then it came up again. And I was like, oh, I'll have a look at it. And it's a video. And I was like, oh, it's an actual like arcade game that came out in 2009 in Japan only and it's based on that kind of like PS2 era Castlevania kind of graphical style obviously released by Konami because they own Castlevania but it was a massive flop like it just it didn't sell well it didn't do very well at all and it's become a really really rare cabinet and it was a really big cabinet um so the premise of the game is it is it is essentially a first person shooter but you use Wii remotes which resemble whips but they've just got like a flashing light on the end and you hold it like out in front of yourself like a like a whip, but like a Wii remote. And that's how you, you know, fight the enemies because you whip enemies in Castlevania. Um, mm. And it's two player, but it's a really, really wide cabinet. And it's like a stand up cabinet, but it's got like a back piece to it, which has got like a big Castlevania like artwork on it and stuff. So it's a really, really big arcade machine. And I can imagine, you know, 2009 arcades are dying, you know, I know Japan's very, very different, but, you know, for whatever reason, it, it just flopped. Never came out of Japan. You know, maybe there's some cabinets knocking about in private collections and stuff like that. 
Um, I did read that apparently there was a couple that were kind of dropped into test markets in Europe, maybe only two cabinets, but they... The, the whereabouts of those is not really known now. Oh, wow. So it looked like there was like, a, you know, an English language version in the works. At oh, least. wow. Okay. That's super rare then, two of them. But it was recently, or it's coming up to the 35 year anniversary of Castlevania. And to kind of like celebrate this, um, somebody has dumped the ROM uh, online for everybody to go and have a look at him, download and try and get it working and play. Um, and they've, they've dumped it directly from the arcade board. Well, um, actually, so- um, Looking at this, it's it's not an actual arcade board. So I, I've looked into this more, and it's a thing called the Konami PC. Oh, in the video, inside the units. Okay. Yeah. So what? So what it is is it's actually this is it's a bit lazy, but um, it's a Windows XP machine. Oh wow! That they, that they had in there, but it had like a protection dongle in there. So that was the Konami PC arcade hardware. So actually, this is. This is native. This is running in Windows XP. So what they've managed to do is they've managed to go into the code of the executable file that's running on Windows, so it's not emulated, and they've changed some of the configuration settings in there so that it does fit on the screen and it works with Windows 10. But they haven't managed to get the controls working Mm. at the moment. So it's kind of like they've taken this weird Windows XP kind of version that was built for arcade and managed to shove it into the uh, modern PC. But the fact that it's PC based and it's, you know, based on the same processors and stuff, it's going to be really easy to, to fix this up. I can imagine and just put some new drivers in there for controllers and stuff and get it going. And I was amazed when I looked at this, this Konami PC that it was just this embedded Windows XP machine. (laughs) That makes sense because, I mean, you know, doing custom hardware is very expensive and PCs by that stage, you kind of got to the point where they could easily run games like this. Yeah. You know, 2009 era PC could run like, you know, PS2 style graphics Mm. without, you know, breaking much of a sweat. So it does make sense to do that. And I mean, you know, there is a a great video if you want to kind of check out where it is right now. It's about nine minutes long on a YouTube channel called video game Esoterica, and he uploaded this about four days ago at the time of recording this episode. And basically, they they say they want some help with this, aren't they? So they've got it to a stage now where they've got it running on Windows 10 with a couple of tricks, but like you said, they need some help with from the community to basically get the controls working as well. But if that arcade was pretty much just Wiimotes, then... I can't imagine, you know, because you can you can interface Wiimotes with a yeah. A I, I guess there's going to be some like hacked drivers, or there'll be some yeah. kind of way of doing mm-hmm. it. But but also looking at this, if they can get this sorted, then there's other titles on there like uh, Metal Gear Solid Arcade 3D and uh, about a million Pro Evo titles as well and stuff that that you could probably have running in the same way. Yeah, well, I mean, if you want to join in this uh, this effort to kind of get it up and running, they have got a Discord server. They're a little bit vague about where to uh, where to actually get the ROM from. All they say is, search for Castlevania the Arcade on that archive site. Uh-huh. So I imagine that means uh, the usual one that we go to, archive.org. So I haven't checked to see if it's there, but, you know, obviously they might not want to draw too much attention from Konami just in yeah. case. But they have got a Discord server um, that you can hop on, I'm sure. You know, someone will provide you with a link on there if you want to get that up and running. But I do think it is very cool because, I mean, it's weird, though, because 2009, when I read that, I was like, oh, that's a recent game. Yeah, it's <laughs> only 15 years ago. I was like, I was like two-year-old. But I think, you know, in terms of the fact that, Computer hardware hasn't changed all that much in a decade. So the fact that they can actually just do a few patches and get it running on a, a modern Windows 10 machine, hopefully just getting the controls sorted and this will be a, 
a game that everyone can play really easily with kind of commodity hardware. So very cool to see that preservation effort. And if you want to uh, check out more about that, I'll of course put that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, one thing that isn't going anywhere anytime soon is AI. Anyone sick of hearing about artificial intelligence yet? Well, <laughs> yesterday you were <laughs> sent over an AI uh, clip of the Retro Hour, which I thought was absolutely hilarious because it made me American and made Ravi really Do you want posh. to hear this again then, Joe? Yeah. I've, got, I've got the audio. Have you, you got the audio, Ravi? Brilliant. <laughs> I have. Because, um, yeah, I decided, cause I, mean, I keep reading all these stories, what, you know, AI is going to take our jobs, it's going to be the future. I even heard that, you know, it's going to start hosting podcasts and everything as well, and there's a, a service called um, Eleven Labs, where basically you upload a, a little sample of your voice, and it claims to clone your voice and be able to basically deliver a perfect copy of it. I've got a feeling it doesn't work all that well on our accent, though. So if you want to hear... <laughs> What the retro hour would sound like, uh, maybe in the future, you know, if, uh, if one of us gives up the show or... Uh, what, know, one of us dies, you just replace yeah. us <laughs> with I, 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 to, I, I never, never announce it. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just replace I've us. Got feeling, I've got a feeling the technology might need to come on a little bit further. So uh, this is what the retro hour would sound like, hosted by AI. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 400, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news. With me, Robot Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to the podcast that every week from now on is run by robots. We're sitting at home playing games while artificial intelligence takes our jobs. Yeah, sometimes I don't get enough time to play Resident Evil, so I thought if a robot does the podcast instead of me, I can play it more. Great idea this, Robot Dan. Yeah, and it will give me more time to tend to my garden. Right now I'm growing massive juicy plums. Oh, and some spuds. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what to say. (laughs) And it's weird though, because there is. Joe said this to me. There's, there is a little twang of all of us in there, isn't there? There's a little bit uh, of a yeah. Twang. There's a little bit of a twang. I think you know the intro where it says a me Joe Fox. Like it sounds sort of like me, but then it goes American yeah. for me. Um, uh, can, yeah, it can of, never it, do regional accents. Like, yeah, it, it, Siri had to, a problem for a long time. It, it seems to lose it after accents. the intro a little bit. But yeah, man, it, it is crazy. Yeah, Ravi's tending to his garden. <laughs> Always. Um, <so. laughs> well, Ravi's a king gardener. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's at the stage where hopefully it can't replace our jobs yet, but it looks like you know, it could be coming for level designer roles because um, this is quite interesting. Uh, this was shared in our Discord as well by Hop. Uh, thank you for submitting this story. This is a service called at Mario GPT. Now, this is an open-ended text-to-level generator for Super Mario Brothers maps. Now, this is a bit like basically an AI version of Mario Maker, but instead of having to manually place things on the screen, you just give it some really simple prompts and it will then design you a playable Mario map. Yeah, it's 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 also got a lot more intelligence in it as well than something like just ChatGPT, um, which is which is just kind of a response program. This also has, um, it's called the video game level corpus, which is a AI learning model, which has come from Mm. Cornell university. They've uploaded it and they've used machine learning. So we've talked about this on the show before you've had these like deep mind and projects, learning retro games and learning how the, the levels work. So it's got a basis of, um, machine learning and like, human computer interaction AI research that it's using as its kind of data set. And then it's creating these like procedural generated ones, which is interesting because it's got that 
history and idea of how a level works, um, mm. which, you know, I can imagine if, if chat GPT just did one on its own, it would be a bit more mental than this. You know, these levels <laughs> look a bit consistent and they've kind of got, you know, big jumps in them, small jumps. And it's, it, it does seem like it's a lot more intelligent, but they've also got it running in Python as well. So you can actually run this script. It takes it out of this, you know, deep learning subset that it's got builds this environment and, uh, yeah, it looks really interesting because I was just looking at what they have on this uh, video game level corpus, and it's not just Mario. They've they've trained it on a Mega Man, Rainbow Island, uh, Super Mario Kart, Legend of Zelda as well. Uh, there's Doom as well. So you know, obviously, yeah, yeah. They they could they could use these kind of deep learning sets and then use them to help design levels or design it quicker or or. or come up with procedural generation and add it into a game that didn't have that previously. Because I know when I've made um, Mario Maker levels, I mean, it's quite a time-intensive process, you know, to get a good playable level. But here, I mean, it actually shows you a few examples of, you know, prompts that you can type in. For example, if you want to make a, a basic level on Mario, I mean, it's all based on pretty much Mario 1, isn't it, here? Yeah. So you write in, you know, many pipes, many enemies, little blocks, low elevation and it will generate the map then. Or you can do no pipes, some enemies, many blocks, high elevation, and then the platforms will be higher up. So you can basically just describe to it. You know, it can be as simple as many pipes, many enemies. Yeah, that's so, that's you know, really cool. That. It's like a kind of searchable way of doing it. And yeah, I think you're right. Like Mario Maker, it's really hard because you, you know, you, you always that. am I going to make that jump? You, yeah. Am I going to do that? You know, every single time where this deep learning already knows oh, that jump's tough. This one's easy. So it kind of I mean, It kind of in. takes the fun out of it, if I'm honest, you know, <laughs> just, yeah. just typing in, make me a level. But it is impressive to see, though, and I think it does kind of, I mean, there's two things here, isn't there? There's whether it's going to, you know, I imagine AI is probably going to help in terms of level design in video games, you know, to kind of make things a bit quicker. But also, it also, you know, for retro games like this, it kind of gives you infinite possibilities to kind of, you know, if you're bored of a game and you know the layout inside out, to kind of give it a, a variation and kind of have new spins on classic games. Do you think as well, Nintendo's which... going to sue it every time it creates a new one? <laughs> and puts oh, it yeah. out. Take, take the AI, AI to court. Has Let's AI that generates takedown notices that then <laughs> goes against yeah. that. That's how Terminator starts more of the AI. Um, but yeah, it does look very interesting though. So if you want to uh, have a look at this right now, I mean, it's uh, early days at the moment, but it does look very impressive and actually very easy to use this as is, well. This is where I think AI is going to excel, where it's a combination of things, you know, yeah. and it's it's not, you're not fully reliant on the AI, but you're using it to do something. You've got human input there as well, but you're also using like data sets and stuff. It's really interesting. Yeah, so that's called uh, Mario GPT. And like Ravi mentioned, it's uh, written in Python, so you can get that now uh, off GitHub for free. So I'll link that up in our show notes if you want to check it out. Now, obviously, we're uh, getting into the time of year when you might want to go outside, enjoy a bit of fresh air, and obviously football as well. That's uh, quite a big part Dan of the that with such enthusiasm. <laughs> is, is football season coming up soon? I have no <laughs> idea. Um, but yeah, obviously, I mean, you know, for us nerds, sitting indoors playing video games in the summer holidays, that's what it was all about. Uh, but this looks very cool now. Um, there have obviously been, you know, football games for the Spectrum in the past. I mean, you know, Kevin Toms, we had him on the podcast, legendary Spectrum football game back in the day. Uh, but this one, submitted by Retro Hamer by Gareth in our Discord channel, basically looks like a 
kind of clone of something like Sensible Soccer or maybe Kickoff for the ZX Spectrum. Yeah, it's it's uh, you, you're completely wrong. Football season's just about to end. <laughs> it's always proves how much I know. Yeah, it's always cricket in the summer. But um, yeah, why, why don't they play football in the summer? Surely it'd be nicer outside than. Oh uh, no, it's all about the winter and pies and being cold on the terraces. <laughs> World Fair Cup, enough. World Cup, and all of that stuff in the summer. But um, yeah, this looks really like sensible soccer. Like even to the menu, they've got like specky written at the top, and it's done in the kind of sensible soccer fonts i'm really impressed with this the way that it scrolls um up and down on the screen and it's it's kind of got that like seamless uh scrolling you know there's not any juddering or anything um the characters look amazingly close to (laughs) sensible soccer the layout of it the way that it flows as well this is interesting i'm I, i i'm not that knowledgeable on the spectrum and uh, the kind of requirements that it needs, and also like the speed. Is this for a, a more powerful spectrum then? Yeah, this runs on the uh, well, it's all 128K spectrum models, okay. which you know were available back in the day. You know, they, they were the later models, uh, but also it works on stuff like you now the Spectrum Next, obviously. Um, but I think, in terms of what they've packed in here. So this is a game, I mean, it's called a Specky Soccer Community Edition 2023. It's by a Voxel Tower, and it's one of these um, name-your-own-price games. That's really so nice. Go on there. I like that idea, name-your-own-price, yeah. Whatever you want to pay for it, I mean, it's entirely up to you. But it looks like definitely, I mean, you know, I'm not, as you know, I'm not a football fan at all, but in terms of a Spectrum football game, I can't imagine that you could pack any more details and any more features into a game yeah. on the uh, the humble ZX Specky than this. It's got every team's badge in it as well. It's 120 teams that they fit into yep. there. Um, what I really like is that you can play four players at the same time as well, four simultaneous players, which is pretty amazing. It's got the kind of management options in there as well. Um, it's got a CPU player as well. So, you know, you don't have to have a friend there. You can just play. And that has three different levels as well of uh, skill on there. It's The music's all right as well. It's, you know, got yeah, music. It is a spectrum. Music and sound effects at the same time. And all importantly, it has that one button that does everything. So um, yeah. as, as Amiga users, we know about that. And, uh, you know, a lot of these games relied on like one button. So you kick it and then kind of curve the ball afterwards and stuff like that and uh, do your slide tackles with it and stuff. It looks really fun. It, it is it is pretty much a Sensi clone. I'd like to see a bit more kind of speckiness in there, you know, maybe a bit colour clash, get dizzy on the sidelines, you know, something like that. <laughs> Man at minor walking past the top yeah, of the screen yeah. or something. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it does look great, that thing, in terms of all the stuff they've got in here. I mean, you've got tackles in here, you've got passes, you've got fouls in here, yellow and red cards as well, you know, injuries are in here, penalties as a referee, substitutions, there's, you know, realistic ball physics. They've got, you know, AI in there as well, you know, to do the, the computer, the CPU players. And the amount of characters and sprites they fit on the screen as well is something you don't normally see. Yeah, that's, that's the impressive thing game. to me. You know, they've got that many people going round. How many yeah. people controlling it, and it's smoothly going up and down, you know? Yeah, so if you're a, a football fan and you uh, want what pretty much looks like the ultimate 
football game for your ZX Spectrum. It is available now, and I'll link that up, obviously, like I mentioned. It's a uh, pay-what-you-want-name-your-own-price game, but um, definitely worth supporting. Support that. And all the rest of the stories we talk about, you don't have to Google around. you find them all in your show notes on the podcast app or at theretrohour.com. Now, we are uh, well into May now. That means only a couple of weeks until the next Patrons Hangout coming up at the end of this month. And uh, that also means, you know, another episode of our uh, bonus podcast, The Retro Hour After Hours. Now, for people that haven't joined us on Patreon, we do give you a lot of perks, don't we, Ravi? Oh, yes. We we absolutely shower you with perks at Patreon, (laughs) you know. Uh, Yeah, we've got some awesome stuff like the After Hours podcast. I don't know how many of them we're on now but it, 35 35 yeah so if if you join up you get a rss feed and within that feed you get an ad free episode might get it early as well but also you get that whole back catalog so you can put it into your you know app i use um apple podcasts and i put the feed into there and then you have the vip feed and it's it's really awesome we you know we discover so much stuff on the um after hours podcast as well, we're talking about you know games we've never played before, talking about obscurities, different systems, and I like it because it's really kind of casual. We've been experimenting a bit with video on that one as well, mm. yeah, which is uh, interesting. And uh, we also do the hangouts, which are really good fun as well, where we get everybody on camera. And it was really interesting. We did one last time, which was on a Friday, and um, usually we do them on the Sundays, but. It's quite nice doing it on a Friday because we've got a lot of people from the States that usually wouldn't be able to make it on the Sunday and stuff. So, you know, that's something we might consider kind of alternating the times as well. But yeah, it's really good fun. It's a really great community. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to meeting a lot of patrons at the uh, Kickstart event as well, because there's quite a few people coming over. Yeah, we've got a great community. We're chatting, you know, all week in Discord too. Um, you know, it's just, if you want to join the Retro Hour community, there's a wonderful bunch of people, you know, like like we say, you know, we've generally become mates, haven't we? You know, a lot of us now. So it's, uh, we'd love to see you there for the next Patrons Hangout. Um, also going to be doing a few more news stories just for our patrons. We'll do that every week. You get a longer episode if you sign up to Patreon. But of course, the main reason that you're doing it is just to ensure that we can keep bringing this podcast out to you every single Friday. And we hugely appreciate your support. And let's induct our latest members into the Retro our Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame. A massive thank you to our latest sign-ups, including Genez Kladnik, Steve Dickinson, Simon DM, and James Stewart, who all joined us on Patreon over the last couple of weeks. We massively appreciate your support. And if you'd like to do the same, all the details to sign up right now are at theretrohour.com. Now, just a little uh, timely reminder, my uh, every couple of months nag that, you know, if you do enjoy this podcast and you'd like to help us out, Apple Podcast Reviews. We love those, don't we? We haven't had any for a couple of months now. Uh, but of course, if we get, you know, some nice reviews on Apple Podcasts, helps us get up the podcast chart in front of new people. You know, if you want a really simple way of helping the show out, a little five-star review on there, a couple of nice words. We'd really appreciate that and, uh, you know, get us in front of more people. That's always appreciated. And next, we're going to be going deep inside the world of Sega's legendary console with the guys from Dreamcast Junkyard. You're listening to the Retro Hour with our very, very special guests from Dreamcast Junkyard, Lewis Cox and Mike Phelan. How are we doing, guys? Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm good. Um, it's a nice day outside and we're about to talk about the Dreamcast, so it can't be better, really. Good stuff. And uh, you all good, Mike? Yeah, I'm doing good, doing good. Uh, pleasure to be here and looking forward to talking about Dreamcast. 
Fantastic. Great stuff. So then our first question we ask all our guests is going to be for you, Lewis, is what was your first video game memory and your first home system? Yeah, I wasn't really allowed home consoles as a kid. And I think my parents thought that I wouldn't focus on my schoolwork, which in retrospect is pretty much correct, really. So they kind of did a good thing there. Um, But I was allowed handhelds. So my first system, which was uh, I got was on a Christmas day and it was a lime green Game Boy Color with Pokemon Red, which I played to death and loved very much. Um, But even earlier than that, um, my memories of gaming were watching my granddad of all people play games. So he'd play games like Alundra and Tomb Raider and I remember watching him and he'd patiently work for all these different puzzles he, he really liked puzzles in games like he, he loved games like Ico and Project Eden mm. um, those are some that I remember he really liked um, and then he'd also sort he taught me my kind of first lessons about gaming so you know I learned to make sure you run before you jump because that means you get further and also thoroughly search around an area and you know you might have missed a hidden item or something like that so that's a habit i still have today and when i play online with my friends it annoys the hell out of them so um yeah that's all thanks to him but yeah um so uh was he quite a, a young granddad or like a hip granddad because of I, I can't say my granddad was playing a lundra which i think is really cool by the way yeah i mean to be honest i'm still gobsmacked that he, he finished the game because that game is hard as nails mm. and i've still never managed to get that far in it um but yeah he he was just a a normal age granddad um but he was kind of cool in the sense that he was always like uh you know he'd listen to contemporary music and you know just watch new films you know he 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 was uh he was cool like that um and yeah his favorite game was elder scrolls oblivion that was his favorite game ever and he once asked me if they'd ever make a game better than it and i don't think they have so the, yeah there you go <laughs> oh, there we go he, he's certainly cooler than me because i'm stuck in my old ways and sat here talking about dreamcast <laughs> he was more <laughs> yeah. hip than me <laughs> yeah so uh, the same question for you mike what was your earliest video game memory and your first home system mm, yeah so i'm i'm somewhat older than lewis um <laughs> i'm reminded by every day um <laughs> But it's so I, my history goes back to the ages, um, and my first system at home was a Spectrum, a Spectrum 128K. Um, and I, I think before that, I probably played a couple of other machines. I had a Pong machine at home. Um, I had a couple of other sort of TV built-in devices, as it were, from what mm-hmm. I remember. Um, but the Spectrum was the first one, so Spectrum. I absolutely loved Spectrum. Um, it was just a whole new world opening up. Um, spent many, many years playing uh, Dissy Games or um, Chaos, 3D Death Chase, uh, all the classics. So yeah, Spectrum was my first one. My first console um, was actually the Mass System, so it's straight after Spectrum. Mm. Um, so my first console experience was a Sega machine, um, something I'd continue for some some years afterwards. And uh, what's both your personal history with the Sega Dreamcast? You know, what makes it a special console to you both? Um, so I was around the age of seven when the Dreamcast came out and um, I had a friend who had one and I have a lot of amazing memories of going to visit him, you know, during summer holidays and we'd just play Power Stone 2, Quake 3 Arena, 
those kind of games and it was like some of the best memories like during that time and you know the fact that you could play with four people was mind-blowing to me obviously i knew that the, the nintendo 64 obviously could do that prior but um you know my cousin had a nintendo 64 but like they didn't really play it like four player yeah. game um so yeah i was playing the dreamcast and i was just like blown away by like how good all the games looked and you know a game like power stone 2 like it looked like the anime i was watching on tv at the time like pokemon dragon ball tenshi moyo stuff like that and it was like you know anime characters in a 3d environment it looks amazing to me and then um, i'm thinking like how can games look this good and i can play them together with my friends you know because i've always been loved playing you know games multiplayer um you know couch co-op especially and so you know i'm thinking that this console this new console is like the coolest thing ever um i was a little bit confused by the fact that the um you had to load the memory cards from the controllers <laughs> i don't think I, <laughs> i'd quite figured out that was cool just then but um yeah um i didn't realize until recently that um the dreamcast had actually been discontinued because i was playing this this console with him like you know when it from when it was out to like all the way up to like 2002 but i just thought it was the coolest thing ever um and until i moved house and i was denied dreamcast for many years and all the new friends i'd made were like oh i don't have a dreamcast they all had ps2s you know no one i knew except that guy had one but my proper dreamcast story comes later which is around like 2011 when i was in college um mm. had my first job and i was buying dreamcast stuff and rediscovering it um you know i'm buying power stone and all those games i played as a kid but i'm also like actually discovering for the first time games like jet set radio and shenmue and at the time it was the um seventh generation and it was that kind of quick transition and hype over um you know first person shooters very gray games you know not bad by any means but like you know i'm playing jet set radio which is like an absolute mind-blowing colorful experience you know yeah. and, and then obviously in contrast was what was going on at the time and so yeah it was like pretty amazing just playing all these dreamcast games and discovering ones you know i'd never ma- had the chance to to play at the back back when it was out and contemporary so yeah so it's funny as well because like you say you mentioned you know the the, the gray era you know the gray era of like <laughs> yeah. 2007 to like probably like pff, 2013 2014 mm-hmm. where like every game was kill zone and every game was you know modern warfare and there's uh, definitely like that kind of like gray or desert look to them so you know it must have been funny being the guy playing a dreamcast you know (laughs) he's got his like technicolor kind of like you know tv kind of things that's really cool so mike what 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 about you what's your history with the dreamcast i had a dreamcast when it was uh, contemporary um Mm -hmm. i i was a pc gamer mainly at the time so sort of 96 97 time i sort of stopped playing consoles really yeah um i went to pc gaming um, and the Dreamcast had a, a pretty big reputation amongst the PC gamers at the time. I think a lot of the games were different and so graphically impressive. I think a lot of PC gamers started realizing that maybe the experiences were now coming to, uh, to consoles as well. So, um, I, I worked in a large shop which, um, sells Dreamcast games, sold Dreamcast games. Um, I'm not going to mention the company because I still work for them, but I was basically the console was there and I decided I think on my third or fourth pay packet um to buy uh a console um so I had a, I had a Dreamcast at the time 
I, I, saw, I did love the Dreamcast. It was a great console, but I didn't really love it as much as maybe well, as I do now. It was always my second platform. PC was almost my first platform. Mm. Um, it sort of it was never really the, the primary thing. So I I, I sold it. Um, I say sold it. I think I left it at an old girlfriend's house. Yeah, um, got And a few, yeah, a few years later, um, I walked past a game station um, in Bristol, and uh, there was a Dreamcast and Shenmue and Shenmue Two in the window um, for I believe about twenty pounds. Um, at that point, I was just get into retro gaming but buying lots of old consoles um so i bought dreamcast um it was amongst my i think 90 consoles i had at one point Ow. um and then sort of maybe 10 years ago 11 years ago i started aiming towards something rather than just buying random stuff Also, this is a time when you could go to i used to go to gloucester quite a lot I went to gloucester and i would literally uh, pick up three four carrier bags full of games for 100 pounds or something like that um and that would be you know 150 200 games in there it was ridiculous so i tried to get a little bit more centered on what i wanted to do um, and the first thing i wanted to do was collect dreamcast um i had good memories about what i did play um and it was quite cheap so i then refocused on dreamcast and then again like five years after that i wanted to downsize what i had in my my games room and then i decided basically to go full in for dreamcast which is when i started my my main part of my journey when i started collecting all different versions of Dreamcast games, consoles, accessories, merchandise, and ridiculous amount of Dreamcast stuff I'd never have. Well, you said, Mike, that, you know, you walked past and you saw a Dreamcast. Mm. Like, the actual console stood out quite a bit. It was it was notably different from the previous kind of Sega machines. And also just being white, it was like, wow, that's pretty stunning. And the, and the form factor, how much of, like, the controller and the design of the console really appealed to you? I think, again, because I played it at the time, discovering it years later was obviously a, a different sort of experience for me. It was more nostalgia. But at the time, I think it was just very revolutionary. Um, I think the console design was very un-Sega-like. It wasn't really what the other Sega consoles had been like. Um, and the controller, yeah, I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of Dreamcast controller, even now. Um, you know, I've probably put in several tens of thousands of hours on Dreamcast. I'm still the biggest fan. But everything looked quite space age, which mm. is um, it's quite. I think it's quite uh, appropriate if you look at some of the original concept art for Dreamcast. It was very much sort of built to be this sort of spaceship design, um, and I think that's appealed to me at the time. I was the right age, I think, for it to appeal to. It was that late nineties chic, and it was yeah. But I think the years later, when I discovered Dreamcast again. Even then, it did, as you said, it did stand out. It wasn't this sort of plain-looking console. Although the actual console itself is relatively simple in its look and design, it's very sleek and very, that's not very appealing, I think. So you mentioned that, obviously, the Master System was your first home console. Um, And then, you know, you said you were kind of a Sega boy through and through. What are your thoughts on the the Sega Saturn? Because I find, personally, I don't know about you guys, but the Dreamcast certainly gets a lot more love than the Saturn. Yeah, I think I think the Saturn just didn't hit off in the UK. Um, I think the Saturn was up against a marketing behemoth in in the PlayStation. I think Sony threw so much money at that. I think it was obviously going to win. I think Saturn just couldn't quite compete with it. Um, I don't think the fact that the Saturn had the greatest 3D output helped. I'll mm. get hate mail from the Saturn fans <laughs> for that. 
Um, so it's it's a fact. So I think we all know it's a fact that the, especially the early 3D stuff wasn't as good as the PlayStation um, 3D efforts. So that was a problem. And I think also that it was it, it appealed more to the arcade gamers. It had some great arcade games. But I think that was what wasn't what gaming wanted to be at that time. I think the mid nineties, I think it started going into that sort of more long form experience. It's a bit odd because the Dreamcast went back to the arcade roots, um, and that was an appeal then. I think for the for the time when the Saturn came out, um, it was it just didn't quite hit what the public wanted. I love the Saturn, by the way, um, but I never owned one at the time. Um, it was it just didn't appeal to me at the time. I think that was a very political answer i like that <laughs> uh, if it if it helps my granddad did have a saturn but didn't have a dreamcast so i don't know what oh. that says yeah. <laughs> well, yeah interesting is it he's He's a pioneer there with the sign. He was pretty, pretty um, rad, yeah. <laughs> yeah, all I ever got was one of those Tiger Electronic ones. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I was thinking, uh, Lewis, you know, like, the Saturn didn't have that Sonic game that everyone wanted, and Sonic Adventure coming out on the Dreamcast, how, how much do you think that helped it and, you know, really made people think this is the system for the new Sonic? I mean, I think regard like sonic adventure kind of gets a bit of flack in the community there's people who love it there's people who hate it i think it's almost a, as much as of a, a marmite game as shenmue which i'm sure i'll, I'll men- mention later but i can't, i don't think any person who who even dislikes sonic adventure as a game can't deny the absolute awe that you, you wow. of of that opening level of, wow. of the emerald coast the music mm. the the, the beautiful like you know blues of the ocean and of course that incredible sort of action sequence of the the whale chasing you is just mm. like wow you know obviously they skipped over sonic um you know a mainline sonic game at least you know for the saturn but i feel like that opening is just like coming back into the fold of flying colors you know and uh you know that that was a pretty incredible sort of showcase of sonic on this you, you know brand new sega system the first time i uh saw it was actually in Beatties in uh nottingham really? and i went in there and they had a, a train collecting section <laughs> they had um uh, a, a console section and then in the corner they had a crt and they were playing sonic adventure oh. and it was kind of you, you got a bit put off foot you were like what there's a new sonic and it's 3d and it's and it looks amazing what yeah what is this you know yeah it was a, a real real kind of impressive move to see that definitely so then let's talk about the uh the dreamcast junkyard so what inspired the team to start dreamcast junkyard website and uh how did it come about what's the story there yeah so the origin story um started with one mr tom charnock um nearly 18 years ago um wow he had a similar story to what mike was just talking about he, he he went past a branch of game station rest in peace and um he uh game station not tom um, <laughs> and he, um good clarification there yeah and he uh he saw a dreamcast for sale in the window uh, you know obviously the prices then were, were ridiculously low for, for the dreamcast because no one wanted it unfortunately story is he actually sold his dreamcast for a ps2 boo but um yeah anyway so he buys this this dreamcast and he's reliving his his uh you know the games and re-experiencing the games he loved previously and i think he just kind of went in you know 
dived in deep with it and he you know he starts to quickly amass a collection and he's you know parcels are showing up you know every other day maybe even every day and um he he has all of these these games and peripherals piling up in his room and his housemate at the time remarked that his room was becoming a dreamcast junkyard so that's where the name comes from and yeah so he started a blog the dreamcast junkyard and it was originally a personal blog for him to document this this collecting he was doing and you know playing a game and talking about it that kind of thing um but over the years he he like brought in more people and uh you know it kind of the the dreamcast junkyard blossomed into what you see today which is kind of a jack of all trades dreamcast publication so you know we do reviews we do video content we've got our podcast the dream pod which i'm sure we'll talk about soon um you know and there's a there's a team of passionate fans who do it um you know and just to shout them out you know other than me and mike you've got people like andrew brian kev uh james and lawrence um and yeah we, we just kind of that's why we are today just uh you know just keeping the dreamcast love alive Fantastic. I was literally about to say keeping the Dreamcast alive. Yeah, keeping the dream alive, I guess. Keeping the, the dream alive. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. So how did you both get involved with the Dreamcast Junkyard? What what's your story, Mike? And then we'll find out your story, Lewis. So I I um I talked about my, my sort of collecting journey for the Dreamcast and one of my main sources at the time was the junkyard. So I I, I found it on a, a Google search, I think, one day. Um and I I just really got really interested in in what Tom was talking about and some of the other early guys as well. And so I, I sort of followed that and then I, I started collecting and I got quite big into collecting and, and wanted to collect a lot of the, the variants and, and import games. So I um, happened to, I was making a list as I, I tend to do, that kind of more in person, um, and I, I made a list and I decided I was going to send it to Tom randomly um and sort of saying look you know this is the list i've made i think it's quite detailed what do you think um and then within a few weeks of that email um tom had proposed to actually publish the list as a guidebook and so i sort of had that and then i wasn't part of the team and then i sort of ended up being part of the team a little bit um because of that and then joined properly um with a couple of random articles and reviews and then the, the rest is the rest is history and uh, what about you lewis yeah, so I I, uh, I came a little bit later than than Mike. I I used to run a website called Altmag um, mm. for about ten years, and it was basically just games, anime, that kind of stuff. I was writing about all the good stuff, and um, I knew Tom because he was kind of an inspiration to to my writing. I, I remember reading the Dreamcast Junkyard when I was first setting up Altmag, and just I really loved Tom's writing style. It's very dry and very indicative of like 90s maybe early 2000s gaming magazines um and i was that kind of influenced my own writing um and i think quite a few few other people you know that were inspired by tom's writing as well but i i guess he he took note of my writing you know and eventually he asked me to to actually write for the junkyard so um I did, and I, I, I was like, of course, uh, like, absolutely I will. You know, I got involved with, like, the other things, like the Dream Pod and stuff as well. Um, but, yeah, and then fast forward to 2023 in February of this year, Tom 
actually decided to to step down running the day to day of the website. Um, so I was like, could I take it over from you and you know sort of do all of that stuff? Um, and so that's what I did, and now I'm kind of, I guess, just editing articles and whatnot on the site and just yeah all the boring parts i guess <laughs> but, um, the general manager <laughs> yeah but um it's, it's it's still great it's still it's still like you know the i was saying this as a fan you know now is as you know this the dreamcast junkyard's like always been like the definitive source for dreamcast stuff on the on online and you know to to think that like you know i'm i'm able to be part of it is pretty amazing really so yeah awesome well, lewis i was i was interested in the kind of spread of the dreamcast like around the world you know um how, how kind of long did it stay popular for and uh were, were people still developing whilst you were working for the junkyard and and which countries was it also really popular in well the, there were actually a few games that were coming out while the junkyard was still around like sorry while the junkyard was you know after the junkyard had been established so you had games mainly in Japan, like I think that I think only in Japan after two thousand and five. Um, obviously, like is it? How do you pronounce? Uh, is it Ka- Karas or Karoo? Karoo, that's the one. Yeah. yeah, so games like that were coming out um, for the Dreamcast still. So it's like kind of almost a bit mad to think that the Dreamcast Junkyard was kind of covering a contemporary system in a way. So, uh, but was it really popular in America as well then? Um, Mike, would you say it was popular in America? Probably more so than Europe, possibly. I think there were certain games that were popular. I think, you know, the, the sports games are really popular in America, but as a console, I think it very quickly, um, obviously they got the PS2 early in us as well, so as soon as the PS2 came out, I think the console um, lost its popularity. It, it, I think it probably was more popular in, in Europe, possibly, than, than America. Yeah, I, I, you know what? I always noticed Sega Saturn was more popular in Japan, you know, uh-huh. than it was in Europe and... Uh, in America, but I always kind of saw the Dreamcast as being, I don't know why, I could be wrong, but I always saw it as being more popular in Europe than it was in America. Uh, you know, maybe I'm making that up in my head, but, you know, it's, it's interesting that, you know, Dreamcast Junkyard kind of started and it was still, you know, I guess on life support, you know, kind of like really? in terms of a mainstream console in Japan, which is really yeah. interesting. So um, tell us about the DreamPod uh, podcast. What can listeners and fans expect to hear on that? Yeah, so the DreamPod came out in 2015 and the the name comes from the fact that dreamcast and podcast both end the same so they just mm. took the first half of both of those and stuck them together you get dream pod um and <laughs> i suppose what if people check it out they're gonna kind of get what you do here at the retro hour so it's just a chill chat of a group of passionate fans except we specialize in exclusively in dreamcast um and we have like different styles of episodes so we have news roundups uh themed episodes um so like for example we we did a, an episode where we talked about every capcom game released for the dreamcast and um, we had a funny Love episode yeah. yeah we have there's a lot um we uh <laughs> we did a an episode themed on room 101 that was episode 101 we, we did one about room 101 um the tv show and mm. kind of a we have a few opportunities where we poke fun at the Dreamcast and that episode we were throwing our least favourite thing about the Dreamcast into Room 101 for it to be banished for eternity. Um, and then we also do quite a few interviews. One of the most notable ones we had 
in the last year or so was uh, episode 100, which was an interview with Peter Moore, who was the president of Sega of America during oh, nice. the Dreamcast. That was a great interview. Yeah, mm, big fan, um, yeah. We're currently up to 115 episodes. So uh, other than maybe like some extra special episodes or episode zero that are like unnumbered but yeah 115 at the moment and yeah still still continuing to this day i was i was wondering like is it still a big console in 2023 we're seeing like a a a lot of games coming out for it and uh why do you think this is yeah i think i think the console is hitting its its golden age in terms of its its retro charm i think every console sort of 20 years after its demise tends to be its the sweet spot. Mm-hmm. Um, the Dreamcast has had a really good history with with indie releases anyway for the last uh, twenty years. But I think the the ease of making games for the Dreamcast comparatively to other consoles of that sort of generation, um, the amount of of different you know bits of, of technology which may be uh, released to allow you to play off the games from SD card or things like that, um, and also I think just I think it's a little bit it gives back a little bit to what Lewis said earlier on, but I think a Sega's the aesthetics of the Dreamcast is just very bright and cheerful and, and happy. And I think that something which a lot of people are yearning for, possibly at the current time. But yes, yeah, it's, it's a big console. I mean, it's not you know it's not up to the level of of contemporary consoles, obviously. But we have a pretty uh, pre packed schedule of indie releases. Um, I think we're up to nearly seventy retail indie releases now in total, mm. um, which is pretty impressive, really. I mean, you know, it's, it's bigger than some games libraries. Also, um, hardware releases as well. So we're seeing stuff like the uh, VM2, uh, you know, the next generation VMU. There's also like, you know, controllers and uh, devices still coming out, which is really interesting to see. Yeah, I think, and and there's been a a few others, you know, we've had wireless light light guns, obviously you can't play light guns on flat screen TVs. We've seen a light gun adapter. We've seen, um, yeah, the controllers, Retro Fighters, I think it wasn't it. Retro Fighters, Retro Ballers. Um, well, quite a controller a couple of years ago. Yeah, it's just I think it's just a console which is is still relatively cheap to buy. Um, it's not it until quite recently at least didn't have that really high level um value associated with it. So I think it, it was a really good uh console without a massive amount of gatekeepers involved. So that was uh, I think that's the reason why the console's so so popular still now. Yeah, I th- I think that you've also got a very passionate um, community surrounding it of like developers and, you know, fans alike. And so you've got, you know, other than just indie games, you've got stuff like Dream Pie, which is bringing the console back online and, you know, they're reverse engineering, you know, the cert- like the way the games play to get them back online. It's like, you know it's like witchcraft i have no idea how they managed to do it but it's pretty <laughs> incredible and and then also you've got uh, you know people porting stuff like the atomis wave which was an arcade board that had similar architecture to the dreamcast and so you know those games are being player may, being made playable on the dreamcast which is like here's new games you can play that are you know in, you know a lot of them are very great looking 3d games and it sort of almost feels like you're kind of getting a new dreamcast game so to speak uh, in that sense like from back in the day but then also there's like translators and they're translating uh, english uh, japanese games into english and so there's games that maybe we looked at back in the day and thought oh i wonder what that is but you know we never got the chance to play them due to the, mm-hmm. the huge language barriers and they're bringing games like that 
into um to us now and so it's like just so much there's just more than more than ever there's just so much to play on the dreamcast and yeah <laughs> it's amazing it really is a fantastic community and have you seen that like kind of evolve over the years has it been a steady kind of increase because of like you know the dreamcast community at the moment and as as you say mike the, the amount of games that come out for it in homebrew is just unreal like has it always been like that has it been kind of like steady through the gate or is it more of like a recent thing like after covid where a lot of people just start translating these games what have you kind of seen over the years i think it's always had a really good indie scene i mean the first indie games came out in like, 2003 2004 i might be able to mm. slate on yeah then but um game store in america at least some some indie games so we've had a steady trickle of indie games coming out. I think COVID um, and the lockdowns, I think, just centred people a little bit more. So we saw, as with other consoles, we saw a massive price rise. But with Dreamcast, it was really quite extreme. I mean, you know, the, the prices, especially in America, doubled pretty much within a couple of weeks. It was a ridiculously um, quick increase in, in pricing, um, which is always a bit weird because the console, which is probably the least protection for games of any sort of generation of consoles so you know you can literally download games but yeah the the, the scene is getting bigger i think year on year i think yeah. there's more and more people getting involved with it i think you've got more people discovering the dreamcast as well which is always brilliant and i think also you've got a lot of people talking about dreamcast obviously we're on a podcast here talking about dreamcast but <laughs> when the dream pod first came out i mean it was the first dreamcast podcast yeah um as far as i as far as we know it was the first dreamcast podcast and I'd say if I published the the list, the glorified list, it was pretty much the first Dreamcast book. It's become a, a much bigger thing now, so that's the benefit to all of us, especially us, me and Lewis, because it means we can talk about the console even more than we already do. <laughs> yeah, I will. I, I will add. Um, you you have stuff as well like GDMU, um, and that allows people to just swap out that dying uh, gd-rom drive from their dreamcast for something that just plays games off an sd card so it's like easier than ever to just dive in and and find some new games or or, or play the ones you you played back in the day that's brilliant it's, it's good to see like nobody kind of like gatekeeping it either or anything like that and you yeah. know yeah like such a welcoming community with you know with 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 things like that what allow people to just to kind of get stuck in with it and stuff so yeah it's fantastic so how do you guys kind of stay up to date with news and developments related to the Dreamcast and its games? Like, uh, you know, so many years after it's been discontinued. I, I will say that, like, over the years, we've we've kind of got the privilege, like, we're in kind of a privileged position in the sense that, like, people, you know, contact the junkyard and say, hey, guys, like, you know, I've got this, you know, new indie release or I've, I've got this new thing I'm working on, like a homebrew thing, and... So we kind of get like contacted that way, um, mm. so that's like really cool. But I think if you wanna, if you wanna like get to the beating heart of the Dreamcast community, even before it goes up on the junkyard, I'd say go on Dreamcast, the Dreamcast talk forums, or any of those kind of similar discords where you see like developers posting stuff and like people like there's a guy called Ian Michael who just does homebrew stuff just because he wants to you know he, he yeah. made like a uh, a teenage mutant ninja turtles collection for the dreamcast where you can play all the old games it's just just because he wants to and that's like the beauty of it um so like we find out a lot of that from forums and obviously like yeah. i say people contact us so 
yeah like if you want to know if you want to know exactly what's going on like in real time just get on one of those forums and find out yeah mike do you think like a lot of the dreamcast technology has kind of enabled it to be used in the future and you know stuff like the vga output that you could get on there and uh the online capabilities and the uh oh i remember was it the rumble pack or it yeah. was a punch Agreed. pack or something wasn't so it like uh, a- <laughs> Like a, not like a jump pack, is it? Jump pack, jump yeah. pack yes. Jump pack. <laughs> that was one of them that I remember, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. I think it's a really forward-looking console. It was, uh, weirdly enough, because I think a lot of the, the games on the console were actually harking back to Sega's uh, past, and it's it's, it's brilliant arcade roots. But the console itself, yeah, had loads of really you know, interesting technology, and, and some of it was skipped from that generation. I mean, the Xbox and the PS2 didn't necessarily go into it quite as much as a Dreamcast did. So you know, the VGA output, which meant that when I got back into Dreamcast and sort of around the sort of 2010 sort of time, the Dreamcast was was one of the best looking consoles. I don't, I don't just mean from the graphics that the console produced, but I mean in terms of the actual output on, on flat screen TVs. Mm. Um, it looked superb. But also, yeah, the you know the VMU, I mean, the VMU was a, a pretty amazing, I'd say amazing addition. It's, it's a very innovative, a very of its time um, innovation, which didn't hasn't sort of lasted many years afterwards. I think the the, X, the original Xbox did have uh, capabilities and like that as well, didn't it? It was going to at some point. Her screen and the controller was pretty innovative. The 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 uh, the VGA output, the online, um, you know, it's many many people's first online experiences. Yeah, um, were the Dreamcast. I mean, you know, in 1999, not everyone had the PC. I was sort of lucky that I would, you know, I had PC gaming as my first experience. But talking to people in the community over the years, uh, so many people, more than they ever thought, their first experience was was playing Dreamcast Online. It's a real, I think it's a turning point in gaming consoles. It's that, that bridge between old consoles and and new consoles. I think that's what makes the console so appealing and so that the retro chic to it is so uh, so high. Yeah, I have to, I have to agree with you there. You know, you've just unlocked some some memories there of my older brother explaining to me about the Dreamcast and how playing on it online worked, and kind of like trying to compare it to our Skybox in terms of like how the internet worked with yep. signals and stuff like that, and explaining yep. to me. And like, I think it must have been about ninety nine, two thousand, and I would have been about ten years old, trying to wrap my tiny little brain about it. So, but yeah, you kind of like. Um, really got me thinking then you know the Dreamcast probably was a lot of users kind of first experience on the internet yeah. or at least on you know you know gaming online and stuff like that which is really interesting to think about so let's talk about the uh the games library for the uh the Dreamcast so what are some of your guys favorite Dreamcast games and what do you think makes them stand out from other console games so some of my favorite games are, are kind of I, sp- I suppose a lot of people who play the Dreamcast have like two sides of it so you love stuff like, in my case, I love Power Stone 2. That's my favorite. Mm. One of my favorite games, top 10. Just It's not even the most f- popular of the two games in that series, but I love it anyway. I love how kind of almost did a Dreamcasty thing of taking a beloved game in the original Power Stone and just <laughs> throwing everything it could at the wall and seeing if yeah. it'd stick. And, you know, it's got, like, moving arenas and all these ridiculous weapons. It's a very, like, different take on what was already a good formula. It's kind of like, instead of it being, like, 
them trying to add things it's like they've moved it into like a different area i suppose and i love that game to this day and it's still as fun as it was playing it back in the day with my friends um and then you've also got like similar games like shenmue obviously that's mm. like the kind of de facto game that people always turn to when they're talking about the dreamcast is you know incredibly innovative you know almost set the the way for open world games that we see today and there's another other games like d2 as well which is like a survival horror game that blends all these different genres the games like shenmue and d2 and there's a lot of other games on the dreamcast kind of almost question what is a game it, it has you asking that question it's like i think obviously you know considering it's an arcade system you know you, you look at these arcade games you think that's a game and then you play a game like shenmue and you're like well i have to wait here for for like half an hour to like speak to this person <laughs> you know it's like yeah you know I, I can pick an orange up and look at it like why do i why am i doing this <laughs> you know um and I, I think that's like and one of the things the dreamcast does really well is is a lot of like i was saying before throwing mud at the wall and seeing if it'll stick and you know so you've got the best of both worlds the last breath of the arcade you know um like i say the experimental games and then also you've got couch multiplayer it had mm. online multiplayer and light gun gaming as well a lot of great light gun games not many but house of the dead 2 is brilliant um confidential mission as well you know and that was kind of the last breath for that because obviously you know in soon hd tvs took over and you know those kind of games died out but i will say on the dreamcast what you need to do is just look at play all the games like soul caliber shenmue jet set radio but also you know look a bit further and find out about games like elemental gimmick gear ill bleed um lack of love like games that you know you'll play and you're just like no other console but the dreamcast can do this so yeah it's there's so many good games that you can still play on the console yeah, so I think my my standard games sort of represent a particular aspect of of Dreamcast. So Shenmue uh, for me is is the greatest game, I think the greatest game ever made. Um, I was a massive Shenmue fan at the time. Um, I had a, a real emotional connection to the game, which I don't think many games have ever done since. It's there's something about the game. People will, will criticize Shenmue for all of its little faults, um, completely overlook the the point of why the game is so adored by people. Um, you know, when Shenmue 3 was announced at, uh, at, uh, E3, it was a genuinely moving moment for many of us. So that's for me the, the, the greatest game. I think also, uh, Le Mans 24 Hour, which is a, um, racing game, really good racing game to hold up really well today. I think it's probably the most played game I've played in the Dreamcast. Um, but it really has that sort of Codemasters, uh, race driver, Toker, uh, series feel to it which is my favorite genre of a game anyway also a shooter uh one of the, sh- the shoot ups uh called zero gunner two um which was a a game which was at the time dreamcast exclusive i think it has now been ported to the switch but it's yeah a really innovative sort of vertical shooter which then sort of changed directions quite a lot and the, the helicopter could move around the screen just a really fun enjoyable game and then, and then, lastly, for me, it's it's that sort of B movie horror style games. There's so yeah. there's quite a few of them on Dreamcast. Type of the Dead is mm. still pop, possibly one of my my favorite games of all time. Um, you've got Ill Bleed, you've got uh, House of the Dead Two as well. 
there's that that retro horror B movie chic, which is something I love yeah. outside the Dreamcast, but it, it did it so well on the console. Any any love for Zombie Revenge there? <laughs> I, I do like Zombie Revenge. It's a good game. It's a good game. I think the problem with Zombie Revenge for me is the fact it's not Dynamite Cop. Um, yeah. So, you know, Dynamite <laughs> Cop, the game that's sort of semi-sequel, I suppose, semi-spin-off, whatever you want to call it. It's Dynamite Cop for me is just one of the greatest experiences of gaming. I mean, you know, people will remember the uh, appearance of a giant pink octopus for no real yeah. reason in that game for many years. Um a sign of what Dreamcast did, those kind of really bright, colourful mm, and mm. utterly insane moments in gaming. And, and it's interesting, you know, you, you mentioned the, the pink octopus there and the bright colourfulness. You've both mentioned, you know, that just that kind of wow factor of the colour palette of the Dreamcast and the colours in there. And it's funny because even these, you know, these B-movie kind of horror games such as House of Dead 2 and, and you know, Zombie Revenge, even though they're these bleak, dark, violent games they're still super colourful and they've got the green yep. blood and everything's so like, it reminds me of like a really over the top seventies kind of like, you know, palette, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. One thing I love about the Dreamcast is, you know, games are coming out for the Dreamcast at the moment and there's a mix of indie games. There's a mix of ports as well, but also the presentation in these games is absolutely insane. Like these are, like proper releases it's really? it's it's amazing how how's this kind of happened Lewis? uh I'll, I'll say cut to mike on this one <laughs> um <laughs> yeah so we've been really lucky in dreamcast community in the last few years so about uh, about seven years ago eight years ago we had a, a, a publisher called josh rod uh now known as, as pixel heart known as both really um they came out with some games which were officially ported games um they did another world um flashback um fate of black things like that, but also some indie mm. games. And they had really high-quality presentation, high-quality sort of... It was a professional publisher, not just some guy in a shed um, making games in his spare time. Um, and then we've had, in the last couple of years, we've had another a publisher called Wave, uh, based in the UK, uh, based in, in Norwich, I think, if I'm yeah. not wrong enough, but yeah, based in Norwich. And so they've, they've I suppose, upped the game, really. They've, they've made it even more impressive. Just really high-quality presentation, and I think it shows that, you know, the console has a fan base big enough to have this sort of community. We've had lots of publishers over the years. Most of them were sort of independent developers that then published their own games. Um, but we had some other big companies, and I think it's just, it just shows how dedicated um, the Dreamcast community are, because I would, I would have thought um, that most of these firms, most of these companies... Um, started as Dreamcast fans. I know in, in the Wave's case, that's definitely the case. I know in, um, in Josh Ward Pixel Heart, um, he was a, a Dreamcast fan as well to begin with. It's, um, interesting because they're actually like negotiating the rights for these games, but it's... also they're doing two versions of the game. So, you know, you're getting the Japanese like covers and stuff and then also the like European ones. So it's got that kind of region, region design, which is really nice. Yeah. Yeah. I think Wave of, um, done quite a good job of kind of simplifying that original PAL look that the Dreamcast games had just without those hideous uh, <laughs> really fragile cases you know they, they've kind <laughs> of done a good job of, of, of transferring the kind of blues of the European Dreamcast games onto like a normal CD case and it's they look great they look really do look good I, I do love the Dreamcast cases but yeah they they are very flimsy. My collection, I think there's definitely more than one or two broken ones in there, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
they they um just to, I mentioned that room 101 episode they they uh they went into room 101 <laughs> <laughs> great stuff so um kind of speaking of the room 101 stuff um I guess what what is what are some of the most like common misconceptions and misunderstandings that people have about the dreamcast and maybe some of the things that you might agree with in that as well um so I have two things for this so one the main one is that people who say it's a dead system um as we were just discussing it regularly receives new games and good ones at that and which also means that it's a current gen system and I will not hear otherwise um so <laughs> maybe we shouldn't be talking about it on a retro podcast hey but um, <laughs> um but yeah um and then the second one is that um I hear this loads because because me and Mike do the social media for the Dreamcast Junkyard and we we often I mean at least I do I hear this people tweet like to us about why would you have a Dreamcast all the all the best games have been ported to other systems that is not true not at all not by yeah. a long shot um you know as I was saying if you dive deep there's like so many great games that are just exclusive to Dreamcast and you can't play them anywhere else and like i was saying earlier it's easier than ever to to play burned games to to mod your console you know emulation for dreamcast is is exceptional and it's like there's so many games you you never knew that you know you'd play until you gave them a chance on the dreamcast so yeah it's it's got a, a brilliant library i think the biggest one for me by far is the fact that if you ask 100 people um, you will get a hundred different reasons for why the Dreamcast died, um, and none of them are true. I mean, it's literally that people just have this. This everyone has this conception of why the Dreamcast failed, and they will stick to that no matter what. And we've heard some incredible stories over the years, you know, about you know PS2 destroyed it, or it's no DVD player was a reason it was it was didn't work or or whatever. I could literally write or record a, a long series of podcasts. Um, just based on the various different reasons for Dreamcast's demise. But going back to what Linus said, uh, the console didn't really ever die. And I think that's something which a lot of people are quite surprised by. I've seen more than one comment where someone says, oh, I didn't realise Dreamcast still had games being released, or oh, I didn't realise Dreamcast had this game or that game. So there's lots of misconceptions just based on, I think, probably childhood memories of the time. Mm. You know, if you were only seven or eight or nine or whatever at the time, and you wouldn't really keep it up with what had happened with the consoles, then I think people just thought Dreamcast came and went very quickly um, and no one really cared about it. But in actual fact, there's a, a very deep and interesting community uh, around it. Yeah. I've got a question to ask as well, yeah. which is, um, do you think we'll ever see a Dreamcast Mini? And um, why hasn't Sega done it already? Um, I, I think it's inevitable. Um, I think the console is inevitable. And I think that the reason they haven't done it so far is I think just because of, of licensing rights and things like that. I think, you know, a lot of the Dreamcast games, you know, it's not it's not like a Mega Drive Mini where the game is, is pretty much just the game itself, which you have to license or, you know, get the, the permissions for. Um, if you've got something like Dreamcast, it's a bit harder when you've got, you know, soundtracks that are pretty elaborate and you've got to get all the permissions from them. And also, I think it's a, it's a bit more costly. I mean, you know, yes, you can probably play Dreamcast on quite a cheap emulation device. We know that now. But comparatively, to one Mega Drive or SNES or some of that would have done, it's a, it's a bit different. So well, I think it's inevitable. I think it's inevitable that we'll get one. I think it'll be before we get a Saturn. I think it'll be before we get a Mars system, if we ever get a Mars system one. 
I think it's going to be the next one Sega releases. I just don't know when that's going to be. Hopefully. They've just got to uh, sort those rights out with the offspring for yeah. Crazy Taxi. Yeah, well, if, they, <laughs> if they can get Dexter to sign the rights over for the offspring songs and also get Greg and uh, and Brett to sign over the rights for Bad Religion songs, then we'll be happy. <laughs> yeah, I, I think Sega have taken notice, though. Um, yeah. You know, they that the merch has kind of increased um, for, for Dreamcast. I mean... Recently, we that Hallmark are doing a Christmas decoration mm-hmm. of the, the Dreamcast. Yeah, yeah, which is like I don't know. It's like I I, I was a little bit surprised by that because I was like, do they really think the nostalgia market for Dreamcast is that big? But I guess yeah. maybe it is. Um, and so yeah, hopefully it will result in you know a Dreamcast Mini rather than another Mini Mega Drive. Because <laughs> had plenty of those. So yeah. <laughs> The, the Genesis Free Mini, you know, the little, yeah. the one they sold in America in like 96 or no, something. No, Nomad Mini is for the next one. I would love a Nomad Mini, to be fair. It would be way cool, to be fair. Yeah, it would be a Ben the App Games versions. Yeah. Brilliant. So uh, what advice would you give to someone who's, you know, just discovering the Dreamcast or is brand new to the Dreamcast? You know, they're trying to start out and explore the game's library and the history of it. What games and accessories would you kind of you know recommend or how to kind of like sink your teeth into it i will pre-warn people that the uh the dreamcast hardware has some shortcomings um it has a tendency to be quite temperamental um whether it be the uh gd rom drive failing you know it having a random reset but like i've said like we're in a better time than ever for mods and you know fixing consoles and the information out there is like spot on as well like when i first started getting really into dreamcast i'm like experiencing these technical issues and i'm like searching around and this guy says this and that person says this you know and so you know it's not like a minefield anymore like you can go on a forum like dreamcast talk and like get a proper definitive answer for stuff like that so that's good um and then also if you know i'd say go on any of these like lists um dreamcast junkyard has its own list actually that was voted for by the community you know check those lists out you know it has like the definitive games but uh, you know play shenmue play jet set radio play soul caliber crazy taxi all those great games you'll love them but like i was saying just you know have a look at you know some games you know that that don't always make those top lists you know the ones Mm. that kind of sit in the background and kind of you know a a little bit more obscure because those are great as well so yeah i'd I'd recommend that wicked and uh i guess our final question is going to be for you mike um tell us about your book that you've been working on for the last couple of years yeah so um like i speculate on about the fact of how i came to the dreamcast junkyard as i sent uh i sent tom charnock um a a list of games and we sort of published that and then got a cease and desist order from Sega uh, for this uh, very short list book, um, which I probably have in my games wall. But no, so I I sort of set myself a challenge after that to, to write reviews and actually do a full sort of book with a, a proper collecting guide. Um, and I think most people thought I was insane, which, you know, fair enough I am. But I stuck to it and I did. So I actually, I actually wrote it. I pretty much wrote the entire guide by 2018 time. Mm. Um, and then since then, I've basically just been reworking it, rewording it, editing it, adding things to it um, to make it a, a sort of definitive A to Z of the, of the console um, from a collector's point of view. So you know, I'm not I'm not going to stand here and say that I'm the best writer in the world. I'm certainly not. 
Um, so it's it's it is aimed towards collectors. There are reviews of the game in there as well. Um, but it's for people who want to you know discover the the Brazilian library or want to discover the various Japanese versions of games. Um, so yeah, the A to Z of of uh, Dreamcast games, hopefully out by around August time. That's my aim. Uh, no particular reason, just um, picked a nice sunny month, really. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's going quite well. I've got a team of four people edit it, including uh, including Lewis here, uh, helping me out a little bit. Obviously, it's all done in um, spare time. It's going to be done for not for profit. I'm not interested in doing it for profit. Um, but there's hopefully going to be a physical version of it out um, by late summer. Fantastic. Well, that sounds absolutely amazing and really looking forward to having that. And uh, when it does come out, we'll have to get you back on, you know, to talk about it in the news segment. So, excellent. Uh, just, been... just to, yeah, just to add to that, um, Andrew Dickinson, Andrew Dickinson's uh, Dreamcast Year Two book is like printed and is going to be released imminently. So that's another one that's really oh, fantastic. exciting. And there's a lot of writing from people like me, Mike, and the other junkyard guys in there as well. So. I recommend people check that out when it when it's out as well. Fantastic. We'll have to plug that as well. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for coming on, guys. That's been really, really fun and uh, our jam-packed full of uh, Dreamcast and certainly one of our favourite consoles on the Retro Hour. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having us. It's been, been a blast, yeah.